want to talk to you today about spiritual house cleaning. Now, next week, we're going to begin to land this big old plane called Fullness. And we're going to talk about, uh, in the last segment, we're going to talk about why God's people come to church. Or if you can't come to church, why you watch online. Why God's people come together. <coughs> we're going to spend a few weeks on that. Uh, as we wrap this up and it'll take us into the holidays. Thank you. And um, I, I believe that that'll give us a good conclusion to this year that we've been studying about the fullness of the Lord. What I want to begin today with is the understanding that Christians have been set free from their sin by the blood of the Lord Jesus. Jesus said it this way. He said, whoever the son sets free is free indeed. In other words, he said, it's not something theoretical. It's not something that ought to be. He says, you're free. And it's as though he's saying, you really are free. But sometimes we don't always know how to walk in that. And that's not a criticism. Sometimes we're not taught well. Sometimes we're so young in faith. Sometimes we've got baggage from the past that makes it difficult for us to learn. Um, there, there could be a dozen reasons why we don't know everything we ought to know. But that's why Paul said to Timothy that a good minister and good churches bring to the remembrance of the people the things that they've been taught. And I want to talk to you about the issue of spiritual house cleaning today because the enemy, this is what he wants to do. And you, you don't have to say amen. You can if you want to. You don't have to lift your hand and say, that's me. Uh, you, you, you sure don't want to point at your husband and say, that's him. But a lot of times, even though we know better intellectually, we still find ourselves just overwhelmed with a sense of uncleanness. We don't really know why. We don't know that we've done anything. We all know we could do better, but it's not that. It's kind of just a vague, I'm just dirty. I'm just, I'm just dirty and I'm not worthy. And you know what? That sounds so spiritual to say, I'm just not worthy and I'm just not deserving of the grace of God. That sounds spiritual, but it's actually very, very carnal because what we're doing is we're taking a position and adopting a posture that is contrary to what God's word says. And if we're not careful in an attempt to be humble, if we're not careful in an attempt to be humble, we will, we will be embracing uh, an, an arrogance and a carnality. Um, carnality isn't just doing bad things. Carnality is trying to do spiritual things in the fleshly energy. Both of those things are carnality. But sometimes we just find ourselves bogged down with uncleanness. And other times we know intellectually that we've been forgiven, but the things that we've done wrong, we just can't get past the guilt. I think sometimes the more sensitive our conscience is, you know, a sensitive conscience is a good thing. Paul said in dealing with food offered to idols, 
He said, you need to be careful before you start talking about all the freedoms that you have because there are people, King James uses the phrase weaker, but a better translation is sensitive. He said, there are Christians that are more sensitive and we need to be careful because we don't want to do damage to those who have a more sensitive nature. And there's nothing wrong with that. John Wayne taught us that a sensitive nature is not good, but it really is. You've just got to have it in control and you've got to let that sensitive nature know when to stand up. But sometimes we struggle not only with uncleanness, sometimes we struggle with guilt. Sometimes it's not really a sin thing, it's just regret. Oh, I wish I hadn't done this. I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I hadn't responded that way. And it's not like there was something evil in your heart, but loved ones sometimes, and I think people as we get older, we wrestle with this in particular. God, I regret doing that, or I regret saying that. I regret that posture that I took or that answer that I gave. And it's not that you grieved the Lord necessarily. It's not that you did wrong. It's just, you just regret. You get older, you get wiser, and you say, man, I wish I had done that different. I wish I had handled that a different way. And we get overcome sometimes with uncleanness, sometimes with guilt, sometimes just regret. But sometimes it is based on something we did that was wrong or something we should have done that we didn't. And sometimes the enemy just comes in. This is in the most seasoned of saints. The enemy comes in with a sense of shame. And you know that legally, you know intellectually you are forgiven. But some of you know what I'm talking about. You're just overwhelmed with this sense of shame. Sometimes, and you know, I've been serving the Lord a long time and I think I've got a good theology. I think I'm fairly strong in the Lord and the power of his might. But sometimes I catch myself just wrestling with a sense of intense unworthiness, uh, sometimes shame. And don't get me wrong, I'm not living a double life. I'm not, I'm not hiding sin. I'm just saying that sometimes the enemy comes in and he just brings back all of the if-onlys. And he brings back all the mistakes. And if we're not careful, especially when we're going through a battle, it will seem that God is bringing back uh, everything we've ever done. But it's not God. It's the enemy. I was reading Lamentations. I don't know of a prophet that did more to obey God than Jeremiah. I just... Jeremiah is, is a poster child for obedient prophets. But when you read Lamentations, he's constantly dipping in from God has punished us and we have brought this on ourselves. And then he dips into it, God has forsaken me. God has turned his face from me. God has done this. And, and it's a man struggling with the judgment of God on his nation and it dips into shame and, and intensity of feeling that I don't think he's seeing clearly in a few of those verses. It can happen to the best of us. Now, I know the word is inspired, but sometimes the word is inspired record of our feelings, not an inspired record of truth, uh, of the truth. 
and, and you know, David, the Psalms, that's why the Psalms are so important. God's always victorious, but the Psalms, some Psalms, God's on top and he's got you up there with him. Not only are you on top with him, you're sitting on his shoulders. And then there are times, oh Lord, how long? How long are you going to forget me? How long are you going to? Now that wasn't the case, but that's the way they feel. And I encourage you to read the Psalms every day because the Psalms cover every mood swing you have. <laughs> and every mood swing that I have. We need the Psalms because, you know, somebody got mad at me and said, um, not, well, I shouldn't say mad. They just said, I read your book about Psalms and I just don't think it's ever right to, to wish evil on somebody. And we talked about the imprecatory Psalms where David, you know, says, I hope they all die and they dash their heads out on the rocks. He said, I just don't think it's right for a Christian to feel that way. And you know, I said, I don't either. I think it's horrible for a Christian to feel that way. But let me ask you this. Have you ever felt that way? <laughs> and he said, well, yes. I said, well, that's why it's in there. We feel that way sometimes. Uncleanness, guilt, regret, shame. These are ghosts and shadows of the past or fears about what may be that the enemy wants to bring into our lives. And we've got to learn, hear me loved ones, we've got to learn how to stand against this. Paul said to the Romans, don't be conformed to this world. See, that's, that's one of the big lessons the church is learning right now. So many Christians are caving into society and reflecting society. We're acting uh, like society acts. And, and God says, don't let that happen. You are not to be cultural. You are to be countercultural. But it's hard to do sometimes. And we're in such a cynical and difficult time that we have to learn that we can't be conformed to this world. And conform means to be adaptable, to be moldable, to fit in. We don't need to fit into this world. We need to be counterculture, but we need to do it in the right way. And that's one of the things God's teaching us. Let me tell you the way the enemy wants to act. The Bible says in John 10, the, Jesus said, now I've come to bring life and that you might have life and have it more abundantly. But he said, the enemy comes to kill, to steal, to destroy. That's his mission. He never has a good day. He never decides to cut a deal. He wants to kill. He wants to steal he wants to destroy. That's his agenda. That's his purpose. And everybody that speaks for him, that's their agenda, whether they realize it or not, because they bought into the, to the uh, agenda of their father. And, and he said, understand, if he wants to kill and steal and destroy, then we need to learn how to stand against that. We need to not be conformed to this world. And we need to bring, hear me, loved ones, we need to bring these thoughts captive. That's what Paul said to the Corinthians. And I'm not talking about playing mind games. We need to argue back with the arguments in our mind. You know, in, in seminary, one of the best lessons I ever heard was from one of my professors. And I, I gave a report 
on a project. He gave me the book he wanted me to get the report from, and I reported it exactly like the book gave it. He said, this is a marvelous presentation. The only problem is you're wrong from beginning to end. And I said, I don't understand. And it was, it was some obscure point between Calvinism and Arminianism, and I'd never even heard of it in my life at that point. He said, I gave you the book to understand the argument. I didn't give you the book to just tell me what the book says. He says, and he says this in front of every other student in the classroom. He says, all of you boys need to learn, and uh, all of you students, I think because there were some girls. He said, all of you students need to learn that at this level, you have to argue back to a book. You have to argue back to a thesis. You have, that's why when you go for your doctorate, it'll be called the defense of your dissertation. Because somebody, he said, there will be people that will try to argue you're down. That's the nature of the defense. He, and then he said this, set me thinking. He said, how in the world did you learn to be a Christian without learning to argue with voices? He says, Paul said, don't be. And then he, boy, and I thought, yeah, keep going, keep going. You'll quit talking about me. Keep going. <laughs> and he gave me another chance and I followed his advice and, and I got a good grade. But we've got to learn that. Loved ones, we get so crushed by the voices because we've not learned how to bring thoughts captive. And we've not learned how to argue back with uh, uh, contrary thoughts. This is the way we usually operate. I am about to die, says the widow. I have just a little meal, just a little oil, enough for one whole cake of cornbread. I am going to build a fire with these little sticks. I'm going to cook the bread with the oil and the meal. And my son and I are going to have our last meal and we're going to die. Have you ever felt that way? I know nobody would admit it, but some of us have. You know, it's just, even, even Elijah said, I, it's, it's better for me to be dead. Better for me to go to heaven. And Elijah performs this phenomenal miracle where the oil and the meal never run out until they can get more. It just, it never runs out. Well, her son that she was about to feed his last meal and let him die, dies. And this is what she said to Elijah. This is what I would have thought she would have said. I would have thought she would have said, oh, my son is dead. But you know what? I thought he was as good as dead a while back, but God came through. We thought there was no hope for us, but we prayed and God made a way you know, that's what I hope she would have said, and that's what I hope we would have said. But you never know what you're going to say till you get in one of those situations. And this is where her mind took her. I knew that this was too good to be true. You came here, now listen, this is what she said. You came here to give me false hope and to bring my sin back to the table again. You know, she was saying, this is all happening because of my sin. I've been living in your presence, Elijah, and I thought that God was going to restore my life. I thought forgiveness was real. 
But I see now my punishment was just an enhanced version of punishment. God could have just crushed me and taken my life, but instead he wanted to trick me by giving me the hope of survival only to have my son die. And it's because my sin comes back to me. My sin was never really dealt with. You remember the movie, The Patriot, one of my favorite uh, movies, um, Mel Gibson, the movie begins with him saying something like this, I have long feared that my sins from the past would one day return to haunt me. That's basically what she said. Now, we know the story. God raises her son and God gives them miraculous provision. And she said, now I know. And I don't like to hear Christians say, now I know when we ought to know all along. But she said, now I know. Now I know that God is good. Now I know that God means what he says. And loved ones, sometimes the biggest battle you and I face is misunderstanding the power that we think our sin has over us by surrendering to guilt and shame and regret and uncleanness. And it takes the life out of you every time. What about the woman, let's go to Elisha, Elijah's successor. This woman and her husband, the woman of Shunem, treats Elisha so well. She's been, she's fairly well off. We would consider her rich by the standards of those days. They make a little prophet's chamber for Elisha so he could stay there, you know, and have a bed and a table and a lamp and do his work or rest whenever he came through the area. And he says to his servant, what can we do for this woman? She's been so kind to us. Do her husband, does she and her husband need anything? What can we do? And they ask her and she said, oh Lord, I live in my own land. That was a way of saying, God has blessed us. We're, we're living in our inheritance. We're doing fine. And the servant says, but she's always wanted children and she's never had a child. So Elisha says, about this time, or, or, or in, in the course of time, you're going to give birth to a son. And this was her response. Hey, I've been to the faith seminars for years. Don't tease me with this. Don't tease me and say I'm going to have a child. My husband's old. I, I, have, I have gone down this path so many times. Don't tease me. And he said, no, you're going to have a son. And she has a son. That son is the joy of her life. The son grows to probably five or six, seven years old. That's about the time that a child left mom, and if it was a boy, and went with dad out in the field or to the shop or whatever. And they're out in the field, and the child grabs his head and says, my head, my head, and has what sounds like it was probably sunstroke from the heat of the growing season. Dad says, take him to his mom and she holds him on his lap and she's rocking him and he dies. Now, the good news is that she had the presence of mind to say to her servants, get me to Elisha. Get me to the man of God. And when you're driving the donkey, don't, don't take it easy unless I tell you to hold on, I'm about to fall off. Go as fast as you can and don't stop till you get me there. But when she got there, this is one of the first things that she said. She said, didn't I tell you, her, her little boy died. I don't know if I said that or not. Little boy died in her lap. 
And then she says to Elisha, didn't I tell you, don't tease me like this. I, I don't know which is worse, never having a son or having one and when he's so tender to have him taken away. I can't, I, I can't deal with this. It's so devastating. And Eli, Elisha spreads himself out on the boy. Um, somebody said that he gave him mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. That's not the way you give mouth-to-mouth the body of a man on the body of a child would have made it difficult for the child to breathe, not easier to breathe. You say, well, then why did he spread himself out like that? I don't know. I did extensive study one time and I came to the conclusion, I don't know. <laughs> so I turned to the next mystery. After he prayed for the boy, the boy sat up and sneezed seven times. Why? I don't know. Well, seven's God's number and God made him sneeze seven times. I don't know. All I know is that God brought the boy back to life. I know Elisha well enough to know that that's what he was doing. I think it was just a way of him putting himself on the child saying, saying we're making this contact. I know we had a little child in a church one time that they said would not eat, could, feeding to nothing was working. And they said he's going to die if we can't do something. And I, I said to him in church, I said, bring me the child. I don't, it, I'm not going to start doing this unless God tells me. But I took my, that baby in my arms and I looked down at my pot belly and I started rubbing him on my belly. I said, you feel this boy? I won't call his name because I don't, I don't have the parents permission. I said, do you feel this? It's right there in church. I said, you take on this form. You swell up like I am. You gain weight like I am. And I just rubbed him back and forth. I hugged him and kissed him. And the mama said, hallelujah, God said he's going to do it. And from that, from that day on, that child began gaining weight and everything. But now, don't line up for me to rub you on my belly. I'm too old for that. I'm too old to hold you up and... I, I don't know. God just told me to do that. Well, I say God told me to do that. It just came to my mind what Elisha did. And I just thought that's the best I can do. I don't know why he sneezed seven times. I don't know why Elijah, Elisha laid on top of the child. But I think he was just obeying God. But, but the point I'm trying to make is that both of those miraculous events, people had to work through the, I told you not to let me down. I told you not to tease me with this. I told you that it was only going to be to expose my sin again. And loved ones, in both of those instances, God was about to do something phenomenal. I believe that sometimes God may, and I got to say this carefully, God may even reluctantly allow tragedy not because he's capricious, not because he takes delight in tragedy, but he knows there's this doubt he knows there's this accusation. He knows there's this unbelief in us. And sometimes he'll take us right to the brink to show us that he can be trusted. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't, I'm not saying God kills your babies. and I'm not saying God burns your house down. That, that's not what I'm trying to make because trauma and difficulty can come in a thousand different ways. But I'm saying we've got to get past the idea of God, you set me up. 
You made me believe something just so you could jerk the rug out from under me. And we've got to understand that God is good and everything he does is good. That's what Psalm 119 says. Now, with that in mind, I want you to understand there are four dynamics of spiritual cleansing. Now, I'm only going to introduce the first three to you. And I want to spend the time that I have left on the last one because I think that's where most of our battle is. Um, now, 1 John 2, my little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. My pastor used to say, and he'd read it from King James, my little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. He said, I want everybody to please notice there's a period at the end of that sentence. Don't sin. But if you do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. See, the first thing John says is that your sins are fully dealt with by the work of Jesus. Jesus is not a fix to make things better till something else can happen. Jesus sacrifice is not a fix just to get you to heaven where everything can be fixed there. His sacrifice is everything that's needed for your sin and mine. It's already been dealt with. That's why John would say in his epistle or in his gospels, not in this epistle, but in his gospels, he said, we have passed from death into life. We, we already have eternal life. <laughs> A friend of mine just was preaching his heart away and said, I'm, I don't know about you, but I'm striving for immorality. And we, we, we didn't let him forget that for a while. We, we said, we're, we're striving for immortality. Yeah, yeah, immortality, not immorality. But you know what the bigger mistake was? The bigger mistake was not that we're striving for immorality. The bigger mistake is that we're striving for immortality. We already have it. We, we, now that doesn't mean we don't live the Christian life. Of course it doesn't mean that. We, we are to make it, let everyone who names the name of the Lord Jesus depart from evil. But we, this is, going to heaven is not something we're hoping for. Going to heaven is not something that we're working for. We work because we're going to heaven, not in order to go to heaven. And guys, I'm telling you, that's a big difference. It's a big difference. If you live under the load of feeling like you're constantly in and out, saved and lost, ready and not ready, uh, it's, it's a disastrous place to live. I did that for years. And I'm not saying any kind of hyper grace teaching that we never have to repent or we never have to confess our sins. That's foolishness. That's contrary to the scripture. But what I am saying is that we do need to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We need to learn to talk back to thoughts that the enemy brings to us because it's fully been paid. He says in the next chapter, John does, see how great a love the Father has given us that we would be called children of God. And in fact, we are. And then in verse two, he said, now we are the children of God and it has not yet appeared what we shall be. He says, I want you to understand, children, you belong to God now. The problem is it has not yet appeared what we shall be. In other words, he says, you are his right now. You are, in, you are saved now. 
But that doesn't mean we're, we've taken the form of what we will take in eternity. So what do we do? He says, we, we're here and we know it's going to be better. We don't know the details. He said, but we know that when we see him, we shall be like him. Either through death, if we close our eyes in sickness and, and die and we'll, we'll open our eyes in life, at that moment, we will know what we are or what we will be. Uh, if the Lord comes and we're, we're caught up with him in the clouds, at that moment, we will know what we shall be. Right now, we know we're his, but we're not sure what we're going to be then in the sense of detail. Oh, we, we know the outline of it. But he said, since we don't know everything we're going to be, but we know we belong to him. Listen to verse 3. Everyone who has this hope set on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Our job is to purify ourselves, And that, now that doesn't mean we do the purifying, but it means we do the things that make the flow of purity possible. Let me, uh, my, my pastor in college, Carl Strader, he said there, I think, is this in your notes, this quote in your notes? Oh, okay, well, I, I might not have put it in. He said, there is at least one thing that true Christians embrace in every culture. And I wondered what he was going to say because I know there are different opinions about baptism. There are different opinions about different doctrines or different opinions about the Lord's table. This is what he said. There's at least one thing that true Christians embrace in every culture, holy living, holy living. We may differ on the details. We may differ on some of the definitions, but holy living is the concept that every Christian clings to. Now, if we're going to walk in the freedom of holy living, there are four concepts that we need to understand. The first word, this, these, these single words aren't in your outline, but the first word is the word cleansed. You, if you're a child of God, you are cleansed inside and out. You are cleansed from sins of the flesh and sins of the spirit, and we have to live that out. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, therefore, having these promises, beloved, let's cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. That's where that old saying, cleanliness is next to godliness, comes from. It, you, really, you trace it back to this root. Cleanse yourself from all filthiness of the flesh. But this is not ta saying take a bath. It's saying there are things that we do, the flesh does. Don't do that anymore. But it doesn't stop there. It says there are things that you might not do, but they're settled in your heart. Don't do those anymore. And this is what Paul said to the Corinthians. If you can start acting right and you can start thinking right, then you are perfecting holiness in the fear of God. They even understood that in the Old Testament. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And, and Hebrew parallelism, which the prophets use sometimes, you see it a lot in Psalms. Sometimes Hebrew parallelism will make two statements that are saying the same thing, just saying them different ways. There's sometimes that Hebrew uh, parallelism makes a statement 
that states one thing that is true and contrasts it with something that is false. Um, uh, the, the wicked flee when no man pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. But there are some times that Hebrew parallelism states a, uh, a truth, and then the second statement gives you more depth. And that's what we have here in Isaiah. He was wounded for my transgressions. A transgression, by definition, is when I cross the line, when I break the law. The transgression is when, you know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go over the cliff, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm over the line. And I go, I, I, 20 years ago, I would have jumped. I'm not going to do that right now. That's a transgression. He was wounded for my transgressions. On the cross, he was wounded for every time I willfully disobeyed him. But he was also bruised for our iniquities. That's me just wanting to get close to the line. The, the impurity in me. Jesus put it this way. He said, you've heard it said of old that you should not commit adultery. But he said, I'm telling you, if you look on a woman with lust, you're committing adultery already in your heart. Now, Jesus is often misunderstood here. I've heard people say, well, if I had the thought, I might as well go ahead and do it. Jesus said, I'm guilty of adultery. Well, first of all, that's not even remotely what he was talking about. And number two, there are, there are degrees of adultery, just like there are degrees of murder. I mean, there's first degree premeditated murder where you plan out a way to kill somebody. And then there's falling asleep while you're driving and running over somebody. That's manslaughter. They're not remotely the same, though on the books, it's both called murder. The penalty's different. All kinds of things are different. Jesus wasn't saying, if you thought it, you might as well do it. That's like saying, well, I thought it, I might as well say it. Oh, no, 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 no. Let's don't let anybody from Christian life make that mistake. If, if, if I thought it, I might as well say it. No, that's not true. Not true. Believe me, there's a lot of things we all think that nobody's going to be better off if we say. What Jesus was saying was not, well, if you do this, you, if you think this, you might as well go and do it. Jesus was saying, I want you to understand the nature of sin. He said, and it's not just the things you do, it's the things you entertain. But the good news, according to Paul, is that you can be cleansed from filthiness of the flesh and spirit, and God does a work of perfecting holiness in you, and it's called sanctification. So the first word I want you to understand is, is cleansed. We're cleansed inside and out. You are cleansed inside and out. Now it's up to you to walk that out because we know, and we've talked about this, that righteousness is positional. This is what the theologians say. We've got to come up with a better word than practical, but it's positional and practical. Positional. I am the righteousness of God in Christ. I am perfect before God right now. Not because I'm perfect in actuality of, of the natural, but because I am the righteousness of God in Christ. When God looks at me to judge me, he sees Jesus. I'm wearing his robe. I'm wearing his robe. And, and what, I, what I wear make a difference. My little grandson was in here the other day and he's telling Pastor Corey, he said, I know you can't see me. He said, you can hear me, but you can't see me. And he had on a camouflage shirt. He thought Corey couldn't see him because he had on a camouflage shirt. 
What you wear makes a difference. My righteousness is as filthy rags. That, that's, that's my good stuff. I, I have no idea. My bad stuff's beyond words. But my righteousness is as filthy rags. So I wear the robe of Christ Jesus and his righteousness. And I'm clean inside and out. Now the second word is the word covering. Oh, this I, I, boy, it's so tempting to just stay on this. But bear with me. A huge Old Testament concept in the idea of uh, forgiveness is the idea of covering. We don't think of it for some reason in the New Testament. Um, the idea, uh, the ideas that are presented are just a different uh, approach, valid and right, but a different approach. Um, but so many times, especially in the law of Moses, sin was dealt with by being covered. And we are covered by the washing of the blood. Now you've got to understand that. Okay. I'm not talking down to you. I'm just giving us a foundation. Okay. We are purged and cleansed on things on the inside, things on the outside. How does that happen? By covering the covering of the blood of Jesus. In your notes, it says we're clean by the continual washing of the blood. This is what John said. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The, the verbs are so important in John's epistles because this, for instance, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. See, we would be tempted to say, well, he cleansed me when I came to the altar or he cleansed me when I go to confession or he cleansed me when I did, you know, restitution or made reparations. But this is interesting. It's a present active participle uh, grammatically. And what it means is he cleanses me from my sins nonstop. It's like living under a fountain. Nonstop. Now that doesn't mean, you see, remember doctrines built on all verses, not a verse. That doesn't mean there aren't times we need to repent. There aren't times we need to confess. There aren't times we need to come clean. But we don't have to worry about, um, I, I had someone come to church, not at this church. It was another state, another church years ago. They said, boy, I didn't think you were ever going to end the message today. And as you know, that's a common complaint with me. And um, I said, what, what, why? What's wrong? He said, because I got mad at somebody. They pulled out in front of me and I cussed. And I needed to get here to the altar and confess it and have it forgiven. And, you know, I'm glad he at least wanted to get, get it forgiven. But I had the privilege of explaining to him, we, we, we don't live in a danger zone the moments between the sin and the altar. We are, two things can happen. If we sin, we confess our sin. But brother, I said, there are things we don't even know we did. There are attitudes we didn't even recognize. There are thoughts. And how do, Pastor, how do we deal with those things? The blood of Jesus covers us. It's washing us. I told you one time about one of my kids that did not like getting sand between their toes. And we, we never had a swimming pool, but we had a um, little, little kiddie pool, little wading pool. And it was torment. They loved the pool, but it was torment to get out of the pool and walk to get a hot dog or get a Coke or go to the bathroom. 
because sand would get in between their toes and they did not like that. So I brought the water hose over and I washed and thank you, daddy. And two more steps, despair again. There's more sand in the toe. And I tried to reason, but nothing that was just too young to be reasoned with. So I turned on the hose and from the moment they got out of the pool to the moment they got their hot dog to the moment they got in the pool again, they were covered by the blood of daddy. Or maybe I should say the water of daddy. And that child had such a grin and was so happy. No hot dog was ever as enjoyable. No Coke was ever as delicious as that one because they had discovered the continual cleansing flow of the water hose. Now, again, there's a time to confess. There's a time you need to go make an apology. There's a time you need to hit the altar. Absolutely. But we need to understand that not only are we forgiven inside and out, we also need to understand that we are covered continually by the blood of Jesus. Now, here's the third word that I want you to understand, and it is communion. We are cleansed by constant communion. This is the lesson Jesus taught, and, I, and I'm going to try to do this in four or five minutes or less. It's in John 13, and it's just before Jesus died. He calls the disciples together for a meal. It's a very special meal. It's a very holy meal. So they've all cleaned up. They've all taken their bath. They all meet at the room for the meal. And Jesus suddenly takes off his outer garment and puts on the towel of a servant. And that was a special towel. It was like a big bath towel that was big enough to go around you, but then had as much material again that you could use to wash the feet of others. And Jesus began to wash the feet. And it was an un uncomfortable time because Jesus shouldn't be washing feet in their minds. They should be washing Jesus' feet, but nobody thought of doing it. And Jesus is washing their feet. And then all of a sudden Jesus comes to Peter and Simon says, you're, you're not going to wash my feet, you know. And, and that, was, that was a good thing to say, except it was being said with attitude. When Jesus was baptized by John, John said, hey, I, I need to be baptized by you, not, not you baptized by me. And Jesus said, no, this is the way it works. Let's fulfill righteousness. But Peter has a way of, you know, it's, his, his last name was Chitty. And sometimes he just, <laughs> in fact, in one of the, in one of the brightest moments on, on Peter's resume, who do men say that I am? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, Simon, oh, boys, listen. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to him. This is not something this boy figured out. He has just heard from the Father. And Simon, you've got a special blessing because of that. And Simon's. In a matter of minutes, maybe seconds later, Jesus comments on his next statement. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. For you're savoring the things of the flesh, not the things of the spirit. No doubt about it, Peter always had an opinion, whether it was good, bad, or ugly. 
And, and it's interesting, one of the Gospels indicates that Simon, uh, because G, what got Jesus upset is Simon said, you're not going to the cross. And Jesus was saying, Simon, you don't even understand what's going on here. I have to go to the cross. And, and it's interesting that even when Jesus called him Satan, the indication, I think it's in the Gospel of Matthew, I'd have to look it up, is that Simon continued to argue with him. And the, you know when he finally stopped arguing with him? Some say it was as many as three days later when they were on the Mount of Transfiguration <laughs> and Simon hears Elijah and Moses discussing what Jesus is about to do. And finally he says, it's as though he says, I'm outnumbered. Okay, if they think it's good, <coughs> we'll change the subject. Now, this is what's happening just before Jesus. I knew what they say, the older you get, you start slobbering on yourself. <laughs> One of my grandchildren made a special shirt for me that I wear when we go to lunch now. But anyway. <laughs> he says, you're not going to give me a bath. I mean, yeah, he says, you're not going to wash my feet. Excuse me. And Jesus said something that if you don't follow the rest of the story, you don't understand. He said, well, if I can't wash your feet, then I have no part with you. And it wasn't Jesus saying, if you don't let me wash your feet, I'm not going to have anything to do with you. No, it was Jesus saying, you don't understand, Simon. If you don't let me wash your feet, I can't have a part with you. Jesus was using the foot washing to illustrate something spiritual. And then Simon went back the other way. Well, then give me a bath all over then. And Jesus laid down a principle that is so important for every child of God. He says, the one that's had a bath doesn't need a bath. He just needs his feet washed. See, Simon had been somewhere. He had taken a bath. He got there. And they weren't dirty and filthy from day's activity. They had just walked across town. But the dusty streets of Jerusalem, they needed their, foot, their feet washed. That was common practice. Uh, whenever you went to someone's house if you, or, or you had guests come to your house, you or a servant, if you had one, you washed their feet because their feet got dirty with the dust of the streets. And Jesus was saying, look, this is the way to stay clean. This is the way for us to have interaction. You've already been bathed. You don't have to get bathed every day or, or at every moment. He said, but it's pretty sure that every day you're going to need your feet washed. And what he was saying is, number one, he said you can be cleansed inside and out. Number two, you're covered continually by the blood. Isn't this good news? And he said, number three, if you will just walk in communion with me, the, the world's dust, my presence, I'll wash it off. I'll just wash it off. Now, here's the fourth thing. And this is where I want to really focus um, before we pray today. This is the word, and I'm going to use the word correction. Correction. Okay, pastor, if we're not perfect, we can be in sin or we can have bad attitudes. 
what happened? It's called correction. Um, in Hebrews, it's called chastisement. And the, the writer of Hebrews says, every child of God is chastised. And he goes on and says this. He says, don't be discouraged by it. And he said, let me let you think of it another way. He said, if you are never chastised, you need to go back to the altar and be sure you're saved. That's how important correction is. But the beautiful thing is that the Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth. The Holy Spirit will remind us of the things Jesus said. And he wanted us to be sure that we understand this correction does not take the form of condemnation. Condemnation is of the devil. Even if it's from somebody online, it's of the devil. Even though it's from somebody that is a critical neighbor or coworker, the nature of condemnation is it's always the devil. Always the devil. At some level, on some route, just like um, G God is called the father of all mercies, it means that Corey may do a merciful thing or, or Anne may do a merciful thing. They may do it, but it comes from God because he's the father of all mercies. Satan is the father of all lies. So every time we condemn, every time we misrepresent, every time we falsely accuse, that's why it's so important for us to to, to be sure we got it right. We're of our father, the devil, or we're, or we're lining up with him. I, I'm, I'm going to tell you the truth here. This, I'm, this is so embarrassing. I'm not even going to mention the man's name. I'll just mention his initials. So his initials were, were SC. And, uh, he, they pulled into a parking lot and uh, SC has a uh, disabled parking permit because his legs uh, don't work like they need to. So SC sometimes complains to his wife, RC, Usually they're away from the place of his employment, CLC. Because <laughs> I, I, I tell you, I'm, I'm embarrassed. I'm, I'm, I mean, SC is embarrassed. <laughs> he doesn't like to put his thing up because it makes him feel old. And And this man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, drives such a big vehicle that sometimes it's hard to get in those spaces. So he takes it very seriously that he's between the lines. And SC was talking to RC. And a guy just pulled in a nice new truck and straddled the line between two disabled parking spaces. And I thought, that makes you want to go scratch somebody's car when they do something like that. I mean, not you, I'm talking about SC.
And, and S.E. had just been talking about something profoundly spiritual. And he looks over at that and says, that really bothers me. I said, to, to take two places and two handicapped places, that really bothers me, S.E. said. And the man got out, and S.C. said, he's walking better than I am. Why would, it's got to be because he's taking care of his truck. And the man took a couple of steps, and you could tell he had some issues physically. But he walked back to the back of his truck, and he looked down like that, looked at the lines, and just shook his head like, I can't believe I parked this way. Got back in his truck, and S.C. saw him crank up back up. It took him three or four times, but he finally got straight. And R.C. looked at S.C. and just smiled <laughs> and said, well, it looks like we misjudged him, doesn't it? <laughs> and S.C. was really embarrassed because R.C. had not said anything. <laughs> But I tell you what SC said to his credit. This is what I was told. SC <laughs> said, Lord, I repent for judgmentalism. I repent for saying something that wasn't true. I repent for having an opinion before I knew all before <laughs> SC knew all the facts. And SC repented and the load of it lifted. He he learned a lesson. That's, that's conviction, not condemnation. While we wrap it up, I, I, I just want to be sure you understand, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 8, 1. We do not operate in condemnation. But loved ones, hear me. This is what I feel that the enemy is getting away with so often. We want to live holy lives and we know we're cleansed inside and out. We know that we're covered by the blood. We know the importance of personal devotion and prayer. But because we're not relaxing and embracing in that, it sets us up for condemnation instead of conviction. What's condemnation like? Well, it's accusation from the enemy. Is this part in your notes? Okay, let me tell you this about condemnation. Condemnation offers no hope. When the devil condemns you, he may be right technically, but it produces shame, guilt, and hopelessness. The enemy will, will tempt you to do something wrong, and then when you do it wrong, or, or do something wrong, his next step is to condemn you for doing something wrong. It brings a sense of defilement. When I am dealing with condemnation, I, I feel like I'm not worthy of being forgiven. I, I, I'm going to have to let this wear off. I'll tell you this about condemnation. It's generally vague and nonspecific, even if a specific accusation is part of it. The enemy just wants you to just feel like there's a cloud over you, and no matter what you do or don't do, you're not worth a pile of worm dung. That's what he wants to do. It's 
generally vague, nonspecific, gives no hope of redemption or recovery. And my best advice to you is to try to learn what the Puritans used to say, never believe the devil even when he tells the truth. Because condemnation generally is based on an element of truth. It's all the other stuff that goes with it. Now, what does conviction look like? Conviction, if condemnation is accusation from the enemy, conviction is correction from the Lord. Let me tell you about conviction. It is specific. Whenever I do something wrong, and, and let me say this, generally, generally, you know if something's right or wrong because of the word or something like that. But those, those things that just kind of fade in and out of your life, generally, you know you've done something wrong or neglected something right because your peace is disturbed. Your peace is disturbed. Um, the prophet Jeremiah said, oh, that you had obeyed my commandments and kept my precepts. And if you had obeyed me, he said, then you would have peace like a river and righteousness like the waves of the sea. But it's very specific. I know what I've done. You know, the thing in the parking lot, I, the, the time it came out of my mouth, even before I knew that I was wrong about the man's parking. I, I felt conviction. I didn't need to say that. Nobody was going to be served by that. It was wrong. I was tired. I'd had a long day and it just bothered me. But when conviction came, it was very specific and it was redemptive. It covers the sin with hope and the promise of cleansing. You ever gone to the doctor? Well, I've got some bad news. You've got this. But the good news is we can fix it. We can fix it. The promise of cleansing. Conviction is very specific and helps us not only understand what we did, but what's wrong with it. It covers everything with a sense of hope. Let me give you an example and then I'm Justin's going to come back for special prayer. Dick Eastman, who does a marvelous job of teaching people the disciplines of prayer, the hour that changes the world, all of his, his, his school of prayer is phenomenal. In fact, I think we need to probably have that one Wednesday night in a few months. It's, it's outstanding. Um, I don't know of any teaching that helped me understand more how to pray than Dick Eastman's Change the World School of Prayer. But part of his routine, every day, at the end of his day, usually the last thing he prays, he said, Lord, he says, Lord, is there anything I've done in the last 24 hours that has grieved your heart? And he said, the goal is that the better you live, the fewer times the Lord has to call your hand on something. He said, I felt like I'd had a particularly spiritual day and felt like it was a formality you know, just me asking the Lord, have I done anything? Lord, we both know the answer is wrong, is no, you know. But he said, Lord, is there anything? And he said, I was having such a sweet prayer time and closing my prayers. Is there anything in the last 24 hours I've done that has grieved your heart? And he said, there was a moment of silence and then yes. He said, I was so unprepared for it. 
He said, I didn't know. He said, usually I know what if I've done something. He said, I had no idea. And uh, he he, he knew that the Lord doesn't deal in general things. He said, Lord, what did I do? He said, you spoke to someone in a way that did great damage. And he said, I couldn't remember speaking to anyone. He said, I was an encourager. I was teaching the word. I had meetings. And he said, I bless people all day long. And he said, Lord, when? Talking about being specific, and I may have the number wrong, but I believe what the Lord said was 924 last night. I mean, you talk about specific. And the Lord said, do you remember where you were at 924 last night? And he said, I, yes, Lord, I remember where I was. He said, I was in my daughter's bedroom telling her she was stupid and that she was in rebellion and that she was a disappointment to me and was breaking her mother's heart. He said, what had happened? He said, our daughter in her young teens, she was like 13, I think 12 or 13, was going through a period of real rebellion. One, one of his daughters, I don't know which one, and it doesn't matter. Um, he said, she has just been so exasperating. Nobody had been prayed for, we thought more than she had been prayed for. I walked into the house, I, I said, I'm home, and nobody answered. He walked back to his, and wife, his wife's bedroom, and she was just crying, could not be consoled. And he said, honey, what's, what's, what's wrong? He, he couldn't get her to say anything. He, he said, what's wrong? Why are you crying? And she just pointed down to the daughter's bedroom as if to say, it's her, it's her. And he finally got her to say, what did she do? What happened? And she was very disrespectful, very, very harsh. And uh, like I said, she's 12, 13 years old. He said, I wish I'd remembered um, Jim Dobson's advice on raising adolescent teens. He said, his advice is get them through it. That's all his advice, get them through it. He said, but I lost it. I stormed into my daughter's room and told her these things that I just said. She was stupid. She was breaking her mother's heart. I'm a disappointment. You're a disappointment to me. And he went on. He said, I had what I thought was a holy anointing. He said, I had what I thought was righteous anger. And I set her straight. And I thought, if, if no child ever understands the truth, she does. And he said, I walked out of the room, then went to console my wife, went to sleep, thinking I'd done a good job. He said, the Lord showed me the ugliness of that moment. And I said, Lord, will you please forgive me? Will you please forgive me? And, oh, and, and the Lord said, and there were seeds of rebellion and self-hatred that were planted in your daughter's heart that if they're not dealt with, and removed are going to grow and she will live a life of rebellion you can't believe. Those seeds have to be moved. He said, I went to prayer and said, Lord, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? Will you wash me from my stupidity? And da-da-da-da-da-da. Just prayed a beautiful prayer and the Lord said, Dick, you are forgiven. I've already forgiven you. I know your heart. 
and I know your heart is to do right. You are forgiven and the blood of Jesus has washed your sins and separated them from my very presence. You are forgiven. Now he had asked the Lord, well, I'll make it too long if I go there. And the Lord said, you are forgiven. He said, then will you also take the seeds of rebellion and self-hatred that were planted in my daughter's life? Will you pluck those out of her life? Those things about her are not true. And uh, will you help her? And the Lord spoke to him and said, I, well, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is that you are forgiven. The bad news is that I didn't put the seeds there, so I'm not the one who takes them out. Now, I know there are situations where the Lord takes seeds out of our lives, put there by someone else, and we praise God for that. But sometimes when we put the seeds, we need to do the removing. He said, I'm going to help her, but she needs to lose self-hatred and rebellion and she needs help from the person that put it there he said i'm squalling i go into my daughter's room i apologize to her i tell her what a what a, a bad dad i was being and she's not a loser and everything was made right he said she she hugged him he hugged her they both cried they both prayed they both repented he said, it was just my flesh speaking, and I'm so sorry. If you would please let me retract all those horrible things I said. None of them are true. He said, I was so broken that before it was over, she was patting me on the back like she was trying to help me. And he said, I, I want to tell you, when we finish this session here, he was teaching at a conference. He said, when we finish this session if you go out to the product table, you'll find a beautiful young lady with a name tag, and it was her name. I forget what it was. He said, I don't know anybody with more of a servant's heart than, than her. I don't know of anybody with more of a hunger for God than her. Of all the people in our family, I don't know of anybody that's more in the Word than her. He said, I am so profoundly proud of her. But he said, it strikes terror in my heart to realize what might have been if it hadn't been for the specific conviction of the Holy Spirit. He said, I know God could have given us other opportunities, but he said, this is going to grow unless you remove the seeds. And loved ones, I only say that not to make you feel bad for an argument you had with your kids. I say that to encourage you to let go of condemnation. Stop letting the devil create the atmosphere in your heart. But say from this day going forward, I am open to the convicting word of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to let altar times be disregarded. I'm not going to let devotional times be disregarded. Loved ones, I believe that we have got some phenomenal paths to travel. I really do. But it's going to be so essential that we learn to hear. Not only know in theory that we're cleansed, but to be led by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. And not the condemning voice of the enemy.
Now, there's some of you that may say, well, I don't even know Jesus. I'd like to be saved. If you're watching online, they'll put a number up. You call that number. We'll be waiting to hear from you. Or you can come forward. Justin's going to tell you how to handle that, either in Brown Chapel or here. If you want to give your heart to the Lord, if you have special needs you need prayer for, that's fine. But loved ones, what I'm after today and why I've approached this this way for this long is I believe that the territory we're marching in requires us to hear his voice like never before. Father, do it in Jesus' name.